0: For God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the deaths of kings, how some have been deposed, some slain in war. Ay me, I see the ruin of my house. The tiger now hath seized the gentle hind. Insulting tyranny begins to jut upon the innocent and aweless throne.
1: What is a man? Sure he made us with such large discourse, looking before and after, gave us not that capability and godlike reason to fust in us unused.
2: O oh, my dear father,
0: Restoration hang thy medicine on my lips And let this kiss repair those violent harms That my two sisters have in thy reverence made
1: I am a king that find thee and I know Tis not the balm, the scepter and the ball The sword, the mace, the crown imperial The throne he sits on nor the pomp That beats on the high shore of the world This is the mighty history of the British Empire A people living on a tiny island in the North Atlantic Ocean built an empire that circled the earth, and brought freedom and education to languishing millions. This empire was blessed by Almighty God and one of his best educated teachers, William Shakespeare. Shakespeare has educated some of the greatest leaders of all time, such as Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill. We shall never surrender. Our troubled world needs a fresh crew of nation building leaders. Are you ready to step up to the challenge? Welcome to the exciting classroom of Shakespeare's Royal Education, with host, Dennis Leap.
2: Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in. It's uh, just great to be here with you. Welcome back to Shakespeare's Royal Education. Now, I don't have any comments today. There was a few people wrote me a few things on Twitter that didn't make some sense, so I thought I better not read those. So, Anyway, so people are listening to the Royal Education. That's great. So remember, if you have a comment about today's podcast, don't hesitate to join me. And uh, tell me how much you enjoyed the podcast. So on our last program, which aired on May 10th, by the way, (laughs) we discussed why William Shakespeare wrote the play King Lear. Now, if you haven't listened to that episode, I think it might be a good idea to go back and listen to it. And uh, today's uh, opening of this program today is basically, it's like part two of that lecture. And so so I think it would help you if you go back and listen to the first one and then... uh, I also just want to apologize for the delay between episodes, and uh, one of the things I think uh, all of you listeners out there that probably don't know a lot about us, but we uh, we all have more than one job uh, here at Armstrong College, and uh, uh, part of the delay is uh, the spring semester is always the, the roughest one. Um, we have... Uh, it's it's our busiest one. We have finals, we have grading, we have preparation for graduation, and uh, some things just have to take a back seat. So this one took a back seat for a while, but uh, uh, Just the Best Literature is up and running. We're going to be working hard this summer to get uh, Shakespeare's Royal Education up and running, and so uh, just uh, bear with us and stay with us. Now, essentially, this play is Shakespeare's cautionary tale for King James I of England. And, uh, I think that's, that's a good way of saying it and understanding it. It's going to help you understand the play better as well. Now, here's why I say that. When Queen Elizabeth died and uh, she died on March 24th, 1603, the nation was very nervous about who would replace her since she had remained unmarried and there by, never produced an heir to the throne. And uh, hi- England has really had a poor history of of uh, lineage and who's going to rule when, when the king dies, and, and uh, there's actually been a lot of competition for the throne. Prior to the crowning of Elizabeth's grandfather, Henry VII, England had suffered 30 years of civil war known as the War of the Roses. And the war was fought between the House of York and the House of Lancaster. And the heads of these two houses were potential heirs to the throne. And the problem that uh, really happened then was both heads wanted to rule England. And uh, uh, in order to rule, one head had to be eliminated. And so that's what really led to the Civil War. And it was a very bloody exercise. But yet, it was Elizabeth's grandfather, and he was from the House of Lancaster. And uh, her grandmother, who was from the House of York, it was those two who actually stopped the War of the Roses by uniting the two houses through marriage. So all of the children to come from that marriage would all be one family, and even though they were from the two different houses. So during also the reign of Henry the, Henry's father, Henry VIII, and And her reign, the nation had much-needed stability to wipe out the negative effects of the War of the Roses. And that's really what I think uh, her grandfather and grandmother really understood. They had to get things back on track. But then, when Elizabeth died, there was no heir apparent because she was unmarried and she didn't have any any uh, heirs. And so many feared that the nation would return to a destructive turmoil. And so, so essentially what Elizabeth did, she believed that the most likely choice to sit on the throne was her cousin, King James VI of Scotland. And uh, uh, they, were, they were related. They were in the royal family. He was crowned king of England, assuming the English throne on March 24, 1603. Now, England and Scotland now shared the same monarch under what was known as a union of the crowns. So you can imagine when you, when you go back into English history and you look at all the problems they had with getting the right heir, now they had an absolute, uh, absolutely more complicated problem. Their king was king of two countries. And so, so if you think about it, I mean, that would put the, the people very nervous about what is, what is really going to go on. Um, the thing is, we have to understand about the history of England and Scotland, they were two entirely independent kingdoms. And so they had their own rules. They had their own, actually, they would had their own wars as well. And if you really want to know the truth, they didn't get along. <laughs> and And if you're really up on the news today, they still don't get along. And there's this, there's always this war, this tension that that uh, Scotland wants to separate from England, and uh, you know, so so this this, this is a problem that's still going on. Now, the thing with James the Sixth is uh, he did hold to his own methods of ruling, which were not particularly English English, and uh, he was not satisfied with the nomenclature Union of the Crowns. That's not what he wanted. And uh, uh, politically, James sought to unite the two nations of England and Scotland into a perfect or a complete union that brought the two kingdoms into a single, enlarged, and unified state. So if you know the Scottish and if you know the English, (laughs) neither side was probably real happy with that. And again, we have to look at even King Lear, a lot of it is about politics. And and if you don't know the history, you don't really understand what's really going on. And one thing we have to understand about Shakespeare is he was not afraid to mix politics in with his plays. And, uh, you know, he was a smart man. He lived. He studied. He understood. He understood what was going on in England. And uh, uh, so, so I can see where Shakespeare could write this and not be afraid, of, even, even when Elizabeth was ruling, he was not afraid to take some marks at her and uh, the way she was doing things. But in May 1603, and just uh, within weeks of arriving in London, he prepared the way by issuing a proclamation of uniting England and Scotland. So, he hadn't even been living in england yet and he's already you know instituting these these uh these laws and these proclamations and these you know he's he's uh, pushing his politics and uh, uh i i think james was smart enough to realize that uh what he wanted to achieve would not take place overnight but he still wanted to get it started even before he actually you know got on on uh, into england so what they did was, is they established a commission of English and Scottish MPs, and they they uh, they set it for October 1604. So so it wasn't even going to happen when he first got to England. It was going to be almost a uh, uh, a year later, a little over a year later. And they they wanted to get the the uh, you know the the political elites of English and the political elites of Scotland. They wanted to get them together. And they wanted them to begin to think about and consider how could they make a perfect union? And they, they wanted to know how could they create this? And the idea, even the idea of the unification of the laws, the parliaments and economies of both kingdoms met with little enthusiasm at where? Westminster. (laughs) They're English. They've been, you know, they've had this, this, uh, beautiful piece of property for years. They had wonderful kings all the way. You know, starting from the beginning of course lear was was uh uh way before some of the more modern kings they they set the commission to start in november sixteen o six and uh it was going to continue through july sixteen o seven and so so essentially uh you know I talked to you last time about when this play was written and uh when it was uh, first shown, and we'll talk about that in, here in a minute. So during this whole time, let's say from November 1606 to July 1607, they were meeting, and here's what they came up with. It says uh, there was no agreement on what they would do to develop the union, but the one agreement was they would repeal the hostile laws against the Scots. <laughs> so, so you can see the Scottish MPs were saying, look, okay, you want to get this perfect union? You know, Get rid of your laws against us. And uh, uh, so so that did not go over well. But anyway, uh, so they did repeal all the hostile laws against the Scots, but there was no union. And so so now, remember now, we're getting to to 1607. And so now came James I. Uh, essentially what he had to do, he had to accept a feat on what he wanted. But unfortunately, as all human beings are, and he was a carnal human being like all the rest of us, he never forgave the English Parliament, even though he's now King of England, (laughs) and he's sitting in London. And so can you imagine, you know, what a turmoil that would have created at that time? Now, essentially, what happened is uh, he did get a few things through, and I think in some ways this is a little bit humorous. So... uh, uh, essentially, if, if you go online and, and there, there's a you know there's some history up there that you can read. But if you even read a good English history, I think some of this would come out anyway. Uh, he had to be content, as this author says, with symbolic uh, reforms and gestures like the Union Jack flag. And so, you know, I, I've not necessarily, when I was little, uh, had a lot of English history in my mind, and uh, I always wondered why they called the flag the Union Jack. And uh, the the thing is, that's the only thing he could get agreement on out of this whole commission, is that they would unite the two flags. And so, so essentially, what happened in 1606? Now, this is about the same time that that Lear is produced. So, right around 1606, they did commission the Union Jack flag, and the flag combined the crosses of Saint George, that was from England, and the cross of Saint Andrew and that's from Scotland. And the Union Jack is named after King James. The word Jack is a shortened form of the name Jacobus or the Latin version of James. So that's all he got out of that whole commission. You get rid of the laws against the Scots, we'll let you have a flag. (laughs) So that's what he got. So so this is what's really interesting, I think, and and, uh, as a Shakespeare uh, teacher and as someone that studies it quite a bit, I think it's interesting to note that the play King Lear was performed for him on December 26, sixteen oh six. And that was during the commission of the English and the Scottish MPs. And so so all of this is going on uh you know as as uh as Shakespeare's, you know, writing King Lear and then he's gonna show it to James. So so uh uh, this is why I really think that, that he wrote this as a cautionary tale, and I've got some interesting things to say to you. So as I promised you last time, and I know that was May 10th, for today's program I want to focus on the character Kent. And I think it's it's really important because uh, if we look at some of the things that Shakespeare is doing there, I think what Kent really exemplifies in this play is the symbol of being loyal and it's being loyal to the people, it's being loyal to the king, it's it's uh, wanting to preserve England, and so so I think this is where Shakespeare is really stepping out and saying, "I've got some ideas that you need to think about." And so so uh, let's just go. We'll start here at at uh, Act One, Scene One, and uh, we'll focus most of the, to the of, of today's program. We're going to focus on Kent, but. Actually, if if you really again think about the politics, think of what's going on, is is you do have you have James, who's stepped into a real, it's it's a real, very delicate situation. You've got a whole country, you know, in England where people are nervous that now there's a Scottish king king, and uh, uh, Shakespeare saw it all. Shakespeare was not afraid to to uh, ding at the politics. And here's the very opening line, and this is Kent. In prior broadcasts, I've talked about, um, you know, what the opening scene with Gloucester and Kent is about Edmund. But actually, if you look at the very first line, it's it's uh, Shakespeare's going after actually King James in one of his most, I think, probably uh, tenuous decisions that he made. So notice what Kent says here. He says, "I thought the king
0: had more affected the Duke of Albany than Cornwall."
2: And so, so Kent, he opens the play, and it's politics. That's the first line. He's dealing with politics. Now, what you probably don't know from history is that when King James took the throne, he made his own son the Duke of Albany. And so, so here, here's the play. Everybody's really looking forward to this play. And here they are, you know, in the king's palace. They're all waiting for the play. And the first line is, I thought the king had more effected the Duke of Albany than Cornwall. So, in other words, what he means is, I, I, I thought the king really liked the Duke of Albany more than he liked the Duke of Cornwall. And so, so can you imagine if you're King James sitting there and he's made his son Duke of, <laughs> Duke of Albany. And he's going, oh, where's this going? You know, so... So but but Gloucester, he goes in there and I think I think actually Shakespeare is trying to you know he he threw out the bomb and now he's trying to to commiserate and make go backwards he says and then Gloucester says it did always seem to us, but now in the division of the kingdom, it appears not which of the dukes he values most. For equalities are so weighed that curiosity in either can make choice of either's moiety. And that means what share they're going to get in England. So so here, Kent knew what was going to happen with the daughters. He knew that Lear was going to divide the kingdom. I think Gloucester, also who was very close to the king, knew what he was going to, about to do. And so, so uh, anyway, uh, Kent says, wow, I think he favors Albany. And then Gloucester tries to just smooth it over. And, uh, uh, the, the thing is, uh, I, what, what they go into next is, uh, is the whole thing with Edmund. And of course, Edmund is the bastard son. And they have this, this discussion. And I think it's, it's kind of like what they do today. You know, when the left, when they want to do something, you know it's it's like when they want to cover up something bad they've done they figure out a way to go after the other side and so so i think it's this is really really similar to, to what's going on is is here they've got this political discussion going on it's probably smacked the king in the face and so now they they turn the whole subject and they talk about his bastard son and so, so that gives King James a chance to calm down a little bit. <laughs> so, so, so anyway, uh, there's a lot behind these things. Uh, for all of you out there, you know, when, when you, you look at someone like Shakespeare, you look at some of the great writers. There's always things behind that you, that you have to really study and really think about to, to get a hold of them. So, so we're not going to read a, a lot about this. But uh, Gloucester said his breeding, sir, had been at my charge. I have uh, so often blushed to acknowledge him that now I am brazen to it. And then Kent says, I cannot conceive you. And, uh, and uh, essentially, uh, that's a play on words, because uh, uh, obviously the bastard son was conceived in a bastardly way. Maybe we could say it that way. And then Gloucester says, Sir, this young fellow's mother could whereupon she grew wound roomed and had indeed, sir, a son for her cradle, ere she had a husband for her bed. You smell a fault and then Kent comes back and says
0: I cannot wish the fault undone the issue of it being so proper.
2: So here the the son Edmund was very handsome very smart and so so again this is a this is one of those plays that that uh you know uh some wicked people do to kind of get the get the atmosphere so so this would now turn into a big comedy. Scene when they're talking about bastard sons and and uh, there's there's more to that but I'm not going to uh, to spend time with that I think um, if we need to we'll come back to that even more I just want to focus on what's going on here uh, with uh, Shakespeare and King James so he's letting him have it a little bit all right um, uh, again they were musing over who's who's was going to get the bigger plot and uh, you know if if you were King James there. Uh, Is he going to give the bigger plot of attention to his son, the Duke of Albany? That's all what's going on there. Um, uh, uh, This is what I have in my notes right here. It says, We can safely speculate that this action would have rustled some feathers with the English aristocracy. In essence, Shakespeare, through the character of Kent, could have been warning James to be careful of his political decisions. And we're going to see, as, as, as time goes on with this Kent issue... Is that Kent really does try and help King Lear watch his political decisions, and so so I think there's a there's a lot to the character Kent that we we uh, can really look over or we're not really deeply understand. James obviously favored his son over a potential English candidate. I mean, we have to see that he's he's just a new king. Comes in, puts his son over, you know, another Englishman. You can see that's going to upset people. Uh it seems like Shakespeare's lessons uh lessons the blow with his comment uh, to the king by Gloucester's response and I just read a little bit of that to you. Kent's next lines in the play come with Lear's banishment of Cordelia. And uh let's go if you have your book it's the Pelican. Let's go to page 6 and uh line 94. And uh, uh again this is just showing how valuable uh you know Kent was to Lear. And so, so I want to start at about line 94. And this is what King Lear says to his daughter. Now, all, all the other daughters, we've talked a little bit about that. We're going to, we're going to spend a whole, a whole uh, uh, podcast on the daughters and how wicked they all are and how they treat Cordelia. So we're going to do that at a future time. But here's what Lear says to, to his, his daughter who will not say that she loves him more than everybody else. And it's, it's, uh, she's not playing his game, essentially. She's a smart one. And he says, how, how, Cordelia, mend your speech a little, lest you may mar your fortunes. And then Cordelia says, good, my lord, you have begot me, bred me, loved me. I return those duties back as I right fit. Obey you, love you, and most honor you. Why have my sisters husbands if they say they love you all? And so, uh, Cordelia is really throwing out a great argument. And now remember now, Kent is listening to all this. He's right there. Gloucester's hearing it all. Lear is just growing uh, angrier by the second because Cordelia won't play his game. Now, if you just slip over to page 7, and we'll go uh, down to line 102, or 103, it says, Lear says um, uh, to, to Cordelia, but goes your heart with this? and what she, basically what she says she says if, if when I get married my husband gets half my love <laughs> not all my love and, uh, and he said the other half goes to you and he says but goes your heart with this and she says I my good lord and he says so young and so untender and Cordelia says so young my lord and true she says I'm not lying to you I'm telling you the truth I'm telling you what's expected of me I'm doing what's expected of me and then, then Lear he just absolutely goes into a rage, and that was always one of his biggest problems. He says, Let it be so, thy truth and be your dower, for by the sacred radiance of the sun, the mysteries of Hecate and the night, by all the operation of the orbs, from whom we do exist, and cease to be, here I disclaim all my paternal care, propinquity, and property of blood, and as a stranger to my heart and me, hold thee from this for ever. The barbarous Scythian, or he that makes his generation messes to gorgeous appetite, shall to my bosom be as well-neighbored, pitied, and relieved. And essentially what he does now is he disowns her. He says, and you, my sometime daughter. And he says, he he, uh, tells her, I I disown you. And then Kent is right there, and Kent says, Good my liege. I mean, Kent stands up for Cordelia because this is ridiculous. I mean here here King Lear is making a horrible political decision. He's banishing his daughter and uh you know he he uh takes her dowry away from her. And we're not gonna get get, get into this in this this lecture so much, but uh, she has the Duke of uh she has a Duke from France pursuing her, she has the King of France pursuing her, and she now has no dowry. And uh, the duke says, well, if she doesn't have a dowry, she doesn't have a husband. <laughs> and then the king comes in and says, your character is your dowry. I'll take you right away. So, so But Kent immediately sees the problem. And he begins to challenge Lear. And notice what Lear does. He says, peace, Kent. Come not between the dragon and his wrath. I loved her most and thought to set my rest on her kind nursery. Hence, and avoid my sight, so be my grave, my peace, as here I give. Her father's heart from her, call France, who stirs? And so So essentially, he's saying, look Kent, you stay out of this. This is my decision. I'm going to take it. I'm going to handle it. And of course, uh, then he yells out, call the Duke of Burgundy, get Cornwall in here, get Albany in here. With my two daughters, dowers digest the third. So, so what he does is he takes everything away from Cordelia, gives it to the other two, and essentially, uh, you know, the reason why Kent is so, uh, let's say, knowledgeable in this is he knows the other two daughters. He knows what they're like, and he knows that Cordelia has always loved him the best, and he also knows that Cordelia was his favorite, and Kent also knows he was going to give her the biggest part and so, so you know it's it's uh, it, Kent is just like beside himself, and so but but uh lear just he he just uh really goes bonkers on his daughter and really, really almost ruins her life uh he he goes on to say, um there let's say they'd be line well right around 134, with the reservation and of a hundred nights, but you to be sustained shall shall our abode so in other words. Uh, he's saying, okay, he's got Cornwall, he's got Albany, he's got the two son-in-laws, he's got the other two daughters, and he's what he's saying to them, look, I'm going to come to each one of your houses a month at a time. I'm going to bring a hundred knights with me. I I give up, uh, you know, being king. You two are going to be the kings now, and uh, you're going to rule England, and I'm just going to have a party with my knights. (laughs) That's basically what he's saying. And, uh, he, he's, he says, the sway, the revenue, the execution of the rest, beloved sons be yours, which to confirm this coronet part between you. So he gives them a small crown. And they, they do have those actually in England that they call it, They call them coronets. And if someone has an extra little uh, gift for ruling a certain part of England, they get a coronet. And then Kent, again, steps in here. And again, he's so loyal. He says,
0: Royal Lear, whom I've ever honored as my king. Loved as my father, as my master followed, as my great patron
2: thought on in my prayers. So Ken's saying, look, what are you thinking? What are you doing to Cordelia? And, and he said, look, I've always been loyal to you. Uh, you know, you're, I've always loved you as a father. Uh, I've always followed you as a master. And by the way, I've even prayed for you. And he says, listen to me. And he says, Lear, Lear just spouts back, the bow has been and drawn, make from the shaft and 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 Lear's saying I'm not listening to you. And so so could it be that Shakespeare is saying to James you got to listen to some of your people. I mean uh, he he obviously had uh English people around him. I mean he's he's the king of England. I'm sure in his court wasn't all Scottish because the Scottish didn't want to be in England anyway. And so so uh you know he's in some ways I think Shakespeare's telling James hey Make sure you listen to the people around you. And uh, um, Kent responds, he says, Let
0: it fall, rather, though the
2: fork invade the region of my
0: heart. Be Kent unmannerly when Lear is mad? What wouldst thou do, old man? Think'st thou that duty shall have dread to speak when power to flattery bows?
2: And, and he says, look, listen to me. You know, I'm not flattering you. I'm telling you what you need to do. He said, to plainness honor's bound, when majesty falls to folly. So, you know, Kent's being pretty bold here. He's telling him you're a fool, (laughs) you're a folly, and what you're deciding here is stupid. He says,
0: reserve thy
2: state, and in thy best consideration check thy hideous
0: rashness. Answer my life, my judgment, thy youngest daughter doth not love thee least, nor are those empty-hearted whose low sounds reverb to
2: hollowness. And he's saying, your other dollars are just hollow. And then Kent comes back, I mean, Lear comes back and says, Kent, on your life, no more. And so, so here, Lear is threatening to execute him because he's telling him something he doesn't really want to hear, but something he needs to hear. He says, My life, I never held but as a pawn to wage against thine enemies, nor feared to lose it, thy safety being motive. So Kent's saying, look, I'm always trying to save you and help you, And you're making some really bad decisions here. And, uh, of course, uh, Lear says at that point, out of my sight. And then, of course, Kent comes back and says,
0: See better, Lear, and let me still remain the true blank of thine eye.
2: And the the true blank is the very center of your eye where you can see the most. And uh, that's what that means there. And then Lear starts going into his religious rant. And Lear says, now by Apollo... I mean, if if you ever get to see the film by the Royal Shakespeare Company, it's it's out on tape. You can get it. It's it's absolutely fabulous. The way, the way the actor really you know goes into this now by Apollo, and then Kent says, "Now by Apollo, King, thou swearest thy gods in vain." And then Lear says, "Oh, vassal, you miscreant," and 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 actually, the the way the the uh, the play reads is that. Lear grasps his sword. He's going to knife him. Albany, Albany and Cornwall, they just about pass out. They say, dear sir, forbear. You know? You're going to kill one of your most loyal statesmen. And, uh, you know, Kent, Kent's pretty sarcastic here. And uh, you can't blame him because he's really trying to help the man. But uh, but Kent says, look, don't kill me.
0: Do kill thy physician and the fee bestow upon the foul disease. Revoke thy gift or whilst I can vent clamor from my throat, I'll tell thee thou doest evil.
2: And so, so uh, that really sends Lear off. He says, hear me, recreant. On thine allegiance, hear me. You have sought to make us break our vows, which we durst never yet and with strained pride to come betwixt our sentence and our power. So, so remember now, he doesn't want to be king anymore. He's tired of ruling, but he wants the power of a king. He wants to keep that power, you know. And he says, uh, uh, "Look, you're you're messing with my power." He says, "Which, nor our nature nor our place can bear. Our potency made good. Take thy reward." And here's the here's the reward. He says, "Okay, I'm going to reward you now for all your good points. You have five days. We do allow thee for the, for provision to shield thee from the disasters of the world. On the sixth, to turn thy hated uh, back upon our kingdom." If on the tenth day following Thy banished trunk be found in our dominion The moment is thy death Away by Jupiter This shall not be revoked <laughs> So so this is the gift he gets Get out of here, you've got five days And if you're here in ten days You're dead And then Kent says
0: Fare thee well, king Sith thus thou wilt appear Freedom lives hence And banishment is here
2: And then, then uh, this is really interesting I want to uh, do a little bit more with this Later, I don't want to focus on the daughters as much yet, but a- as he's leaving, he looks at Cordelia and he says,
0: The gods to their dear shelter take thee, maid, that justly
2: thinks and has most rightly said. So he said, Cordelia, I'm going to pray that gods, the gods really help you because you're the only one that's right here of all the daughters. Then he looks at Reagan and Goneril. He says,
0: And your large speeches may your deeds approve that good effects may spring from words of love thus kent o oh princes bids you all adieu he'll shape his old course in a country new
2: so there he's talking to uh albany and uh cornwall and he says i bid you princes to all of you adieu so then uh um you know he he, he leaves so uh that's that's uh one of the big scenes that that you really need to focus on if you really want to understand Kent. That's, that's one of the, the biggest ones right there. So let's go over now, um, Act 1, Scene 4. And this is where, where uh, just to show you his loyalty, we're, we're skipping over a lot, but uh, I want to focus on Kent today. So let's go back to uh, page 23 now, or I should say go ahead to page 23. Uh, it'd be act one, scene four. And the, again, Kent is the main, uh, character in this scene. And, uh, it says Kent enters disguised. And remember now, he has been banished from England. And if he still shows up ten days later, he's going to be killed. So what he does, what Kent does is he goes and he, uh, cuts his hair, cuts his beard, uh, changes his clothes. So he now looks completely different. Actually also changes his accent. And so, so i wonder if he changed, uh, you know, his uh, British accent to Scottish, <laughs> because he does some more Scottish, so, so maybe uh, Shakespeare is trying to please, <laughs> please James. But anyway, Kent comes back, he's all disguised, and uh, uh, he enters in, this is page 23, we started at line one there, um, act, four, act one, scene four, says uh, Kent.
0: If but as well I other accents borrow.
2: And that's what he's talking about, his language. He's, he's borrowing other accents.
0: that can my speech diffuse, my good intent, may carry through itself to that full issue for which I raise my likeness. Now banished, Kent, if thou canst serve where thou dost stand condemned, so may it come, thy master, whom thou lovest, shall find thee full of labors.
2: So so here's Kent. He's, I mean, uh, he tried to help Cordelia. He tried to help Lear. Lear. And, uh, and instead of giving up and just going away he says you know what that guy needs help I'm going to go back I'm going to change my personality I'm going to change what I look like I'm going to go back and help this man and so uh, uh, Lear uh, Lear says let me not stay a jot for dinner go get it ready and there's an attendant there so so he's at his daughter's house and this is his first month and he's got a hundred nights with him and he gets there, shows up, and dinner's not ready, <laughs> you know. But he doesn't realize the daughters don't like him, so they could care less when he comes. And so so uh, essentially he says, uh, basically he's really arrogant. He says, well, I, I can't wait for dinner. Go get it ready. And so he sends one of his attendants. And he says, how now? What art thou? thou? So Kent obviously shows up. He's right there. And he says, what are you? And Kent says, a man, sir. And Lear says, what do you profess? What would you with us? He says,
0: I do profess to be no less than I seem, to serve him truly that will put me in trust, to love him that is honest, to converse with him that is wise and says little, to fear judgment, to fight when I cannot choose, and to eat no fish.
2: <laughs> and so so I'll tell you what that's upon on in a minute. But But essentially, he shows up, and he really wants to, to help Lear. And Lear's already at a daughter's house who does not want him there. And so she doesn't have food prepared for him. You know, I have, I have four wonderful daughters, and, you know, if, if, uh, if I stop in, uh, they want to do anything they can to help me, you know, have a comfortable time or a comfortable stay. And, uh, you know, uh, they're always there for me. And so it's, it's really always nice to have that. And uh, so, so this was not happening there. So, so can't really he shows up because he wants to now continue to serve the king, even though he was banished. And and the, the the last part of that whole sentence there, or that whole little little section, he says to converse with him that is wise and says little to fear judgment, to fight when I cannot choose, and to eat no fish. And so, so if you look at what the experts say, uh, he says he's not going to eat any fish because he's never going to become a Roman Catholic. And Roman Catholics have to eat fish uh, during Lent, and they have to eat fish every Friday. And uh, I was a Roman Catholic, and I I know what that was like as a kid. You know, we had sardines every Friday for lunch. And so, so but Lear looks at him and says, What art thou? And he says,
0: A very honest-hearted fellow. And as poor as the king?
2: So so he's already, he's coming to to tell the king, look, I want to serve you, I want to help you. But then he's also, uh, yeah, I'm here because I want to help you. And, uh, you know, he didn't want the help before. And the lyric says, if you beest as poor for a subject as he's for a king, thou art poor enough, what would you? And he said, service. Who would you serve? You. Dost you know me, fellow.
0: No, sir, but you can have that in your countenance, which I would fain call master.
2: And Lear says, what's that? And he says...
0: Authority.
2: What services can you do? He says...
0: I can keep honest counsel, ride, run, mar a curious tale in telling it, and deliver a plain message bluntly. That which ordinary men are fit for, I am qualified in, and the best of me is diligence.
2: And so... There he is, giving him his resume. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I think every every boss would like someone that says they're diligent. And he says, how old are you? And so, so here Lear, he's like, you know, a few steps away from his grave anyway. And he says, well, how old are you? I don't know if I want to hire a, an old guy. And he says, look.
0: Not so young, sir, to love a woman for singing, nor so old to dote on her for anything. I have years on my back, 48.
2: So he's only 48 years old. Uh, that's not that old you know so so i just turned 71 and i don't feel old and uh i even like every year i get a little little bit of a uh oh a medical look over and and uh the doctor said to me what are you doing he said you have the body of a 56 year old well that's music to my ears you know so so i said i eat right and i don't do crazy things i'm not a drunk i don't do drugs I don't smoke pot, I exercise, and I said that's how that happens so so anyway, he, he he goes on to say, then, Lear, follow me, thou shalt serve me if I like you no worse after dinner, I will not part from thee yet. Dinner, ho oh dinner, where's my knave, my fool? Go and call my fool hither, you, sirrah, where's my daughter And of course, he starts tangling with Goneril's friend. Her servant Oswald, and we find out later in the play that he he's also her lover, and so uh, so he said, "Where's my daughter?" And he just he just throws it off. He says, "So please you." He said, I, don't, "I don't know. I'm not telling you anything." And then Lear says, "What says the fellow here?" And he says, "Call the clotpole back," and that just means blockhead. And it, it said, a knight comes in then, and it's a it's, uh, I, I, Ken is kind of keeping his mouth shut here. And a knight enters his, he, to uh, to help him. And he says, where's my fool? He's talking to the knight. Oh, I think the world's asleep. Enter the knight. And he says, how now? Where's that mongrel? The knight says, he says, my lord, your daughter is not well. And so this is Oswald. And so he's sent to get the daughter. And, and the knight says, when he talked to Oswald, oh, yeah. She doesn't want to see him. She doesn't feel well. And Lear says, why came not the slave back to tell me when I called him? He said, this is the knight." He says, sir, he answered me in the roundest manner. He would not. In other words, he was really arrogant with the knight. He would not. My Lord, I know not what the matter is, but to my judgment, your highness is not entertained with as ceremonious affection as you want. There's a great abatement of kindness appears as well as in the general dependence as in the duke himself also and your daughter. And so he's saying... They're not going to give you what you want. They're not going to give you what you think you deserve, what you said you wanted. And, uh, uh, Lear, Lear really kind of, uh, gets really upset with all this. And he keeps wanting to fool. And we've already done some on that. So, so, uh, let's just stay here with Kent. So let's go over to page 26 now. And, uh, uh, finally they get all Oswald back. And, uh, Lear says to him, uh, do you know who I am? And Oswald says, "Yeah, my lady's father." And then Lear just goes berserk. My lady's father. And remember now—he gave up everything except he wanted the title of king and he wants the power of a king. And he want, he expected Oswald to say, "Why well, you're the king?" And he's going to say, "No way, I don't have to do that." And then Lear goes nuts. He says, "My my lady's father." My lord's knave, you whoresome dog, you slave, you cur. So uh, Lear could really dish it out. Oswald said, I'm none of these, my lord. I beseech your pardon. <laughs> and so, so Oswald, he decides, you have to say you're sorry for what you just said to me. And Lear says, do you bandy looks with me, you rascal? And so Lear just uh, hits him. <laughs> and, so, and so, but then what's really interesting here, Kent Gets in and he trips him. <laughs> so so here you got Lear working and then you have Kent right there with him. And and Kent says, uh, Oswald says to Lear, I'll, I'll not be struck in my lord. And Kent says,
0: nor trip neither, you base football player.
2: So then he, he uh, trips the guy. he's And the, notice what Lear says, I thank you, fellow. You service me and I'll love thee. And so, so now all of a sudden they haven't even had any dinner. And because he tripped Oswald... He said, okay, you're, you're in. <laughs> you know, He accepts them. He said, uh, uh, Kent says,
0: Come, sir, arise, away. I'll teach you differences. Away, away. If you will measure your lover's length again. Tarry, but away. Go to, have you wisdom, so.
2: And he pushes him out. So, so Kent gets really aggressive, and he pushes Oswald completely out of the scene. And then Lear says, "Oh, now, my friendly knave, I thank you. There's earnest of thy service." So, so essentially, what Lear does, he gives him his first paycheck <laughs> for what he did to Oswald. So, so in, in some ways, I think that's that, that's that's a really great scene. But the the, the thing is, it, it just shows, I think, the, the loyalty of Kent. It it really shows a great loyalty there that that he's going to stay with him and and he's going to to you know to work with him and uh i think that's that's uh d- just a great a great attitude so so essentially then kent becomes uh lear's protector and uh you know he he shows lear uh what he's willing to do even to go after um goneril's steward and then he's accepted and so so i think that's that's really really a good a good thing all right um let me just see where we can go from here. We've already done the the Lear and the Fool. Let's go over to uh to act 2. And let's go to scene 1 and and this is will be just a little bit different. But uh what what I want to show you here this is uh this is the 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 act where things really begin to get heated up for for Lear. And uh, uh, we may call this an introduction to our next, our next uh, podcast. Closing Act 1 there, we just have the fact that, that uh, uh, Lear actually does have someone there to protect him. And he certainly needs it. And we'll, we'll find where, where uh, we'll do more of Kent later when uh, he helps Cordelia. But um, the Act Two, I think, is, is it's really a, a very interesting act, and uh, essentially what you have the situation between Edmund and Edgar coming more to the foreground, and uh, you know, remember that Edmund is the bastard, and essentially they're at they're at Gloucester's house now, and so, so things are going to really start yeah. working against Lear even more. And uh, also to work against Gloucester, but but the the line st- starts open with Edmund, and I remember now he's the bastard son. He says, "Save thee, Curan," and Curran that this is the servant of Gloucester. He says, "And you, sir, I have been with your father, and given him notice that the Duke of Cornwall and Regan, his Duchess, will be here with him this night." And Edmund says, "How comes that?" And then his servant says, "Nay, I know not. You have heard of the news abroad. I mean the whispered ones, for they are yet but ear-kissing arguments." And Edmund says, "Oh, what what do you mean?" And essentially, what what what's happening here in Act Two is we begin to see that there's a civil war brewing between Albany and Cornwall, and that's what's coming up. And of course, you know Edmund, he's got his hands in in the the pot in a way. Uh, you know, Edmund is, uh, we, we know as we go through the play that Edmund is having an affair with both Goneril and her sister. And, uh, you know, it's, and, uh, Cordelia's out of the scene. And, uh, so, so there's a lot of evil going to be really start working here. Uh, Curran says, "Nay, I know not. You have heard of the news abroad. I mean the whispered ones where they are yet, but you're kissing arguments so So essentially, there's a civil war going on, but also remember now, Cordelia is queen of France, and she's got her own army, and so so that's all going to start in the pl- into the play now. Edmund says, "Not I, pray you, what are they And Curran says, Have you heard no likely wars toward twixt Dukes of Cornwall and Albany?" Well, not a word. He says, you may do then in time. Fare you well, sir. And so so the the, uh, servant goes away. He says, and then Edmund's by himself. He says, the Duke be here tonight. The better best. This weaves itself perforce into my business. My father has set guard to take my brother. And I have one thing of a queasy question, which I must act. Briefness and fortune work. Brother, a word to send. Brother, I say. And so, essentially, what we're we're getting now into the other family in the play, we have Lear's family, we have Gloucester's family. Uh, Gloucester has a, you know a natural-born son, uh, and then Gloucester has a, you know an illegitimate son, and and essentially, you know, there's been this war between the two daughters and Cordelia. And now there's now there's this war between uh, Edmund and Edgar, and that's the problem: is that there's family problems produced government problems that's that's really what what Shakespeare is after here and so uh so essentially what Edmund wants to do is he wants to get rid of his father he wants to kill him because he wants the money he's already got the other son freaked out and he's run away and he's actually Tom Obedlam so you can see someone like and, and um uh Ken is going to come back by the way into the play but but you can see here that Shakespeare is really talking about families and he's talking about politics and families he's talking about how if the family isn't right then the government's not not going to be right and and I think he's really trying to tell James look you got to consider families here you got the scottish families you got the english families you know you got you got to really really pay attention here so uh so essentially he's calling his brother He's, you know, his brother has been hiding. He's, he's been afraid of his father, and uh, so then Edgar just drops into the scene. He says, "My father watches. Oh, sir, fly this place. Intelligence is given where you are hid. You have now the good advantage of the night. Have you not spoken against the Duke of Cornwall?" So, so, so here's what's going on. Edmund wants to get to get to really separate his brother Edgar from his father. You know, he, he, he wants to get his father all stirred up against his brother. But now what he's saying, he's just entering in more lies. He's saying, so have you been talking against the Duke of Cornwall? And when you look at the Duke of Albany and look at the Duke of Cornwall, I mean, if we just look at it from the English society is Cornwall is the most evil of the two. And uh, uh, so so he says, look, Uh, Edgar, Edmund is saying look, you've got the advantage of night you've got to get out of here, your dad's hunting to kill you, and he said you've got to get going and uh, uh, he's saying, look, the rumor is that you've been speaking against the Duke of Cornwall and he's coming hither this night in the haste, and Reagan with him, have you nothing said upon his party against the Duke of Albany advise yourself, and Edgar says, I'm sure on it, not a word I haven't said anything about that and then Edmund says, "I hear my father coming. Pardon me, in cunning I must draw my sword upon you. Draw, seem to defend yourself. Now quit you well, yield. Come before my father. Light ho here, fly, brother. Torches, torches. So farewell. And then, then uh, Edgar flees. But then Edmund cuts himself to look like his brother just stabbed him." And so so he's really setting up Gloucester. He said, Some blood drawn on me would be would be good opinion of my more fierce endeavor. So he wounds his own arm. He says, I have drunkards do more than this in sport. Father, father, stop. No help. So Gloucester enters and his servants with torches. And Gloucester says, Now, Edmund, where's the villain? And he's talking about his son, Edgar. He said, He stood here in the dark, his sharp sword out, mumbling of quick charms, conjuring the moon, To stand, auspicious mistress. But where is he? Said Gloucester. Look, sir, I bleed. (laughs) Gloucester, he he ignores it. (laughs) And Gloucester says, where's the villain, Edmund? He said, fled this way, sir, which by no means he could. And Gloucester says, pursue him, go after. And uh, he actually sends his servants. He says, by no means what? He said, persuade me to the murder of your lordship. So here he now, he lies and he said Edgar really came to just, uh, persuade Edmund to murder his father. And so, so that's a complete lie. And, and you, you, you'll see as we go through the play that, that, uh, uh, Edmund is, is a gifted liar and he can look so innocent. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's too sad. All right. On, uh, We'll just continue there. It says, Eminence says to his father, Persuade me to the murder of your lordships. He said, uh, But that I told him that the revenging gods against parricides did all the thunder bend, spoke with how manifold and strong a bond. The child was bound to the father, sir, in fine. Seeing how loathly opposite I stood to his unnatural purpose, in fell motion with his prepared sword he charges home my unprovised body latched my arm, and when he saw my best allurem spirits, bold in the quarrel's right, roused to the encounter, or whether gasted by noise I made, full suddenly he fled. And he said, Let him fly far, not in this land shall he remain uncaught. And foul dispatch, the noble duke my master, my worthy arch and patron, comes to night. By his authority I will proclaim it, that he which finds him shall deserve our thanks." bringing the murderous coward to the stake that conceals himself, death. And so, so Gloucester there now promises uh, Edmund that that let him fly, but we're going to find him, and then we're going to bring him back, and uh, we're going to execute him. And so then Edmund goes on and says, When I dis- dissuaded him from his intent and found him pite to do it, with cursed speech I threatened to discover him, he replied, Thou unpossessing bastard, dost thou think if I would stand against thee with the reposal of any trust, virtue, or worth in thee, make thy words faithed? No, what I should deny, as I would, as though thou didst produce my very character, I turn it all to thy suggestion, plot, damned practice, and thou must make a dollard of the world, if they not the prophets of my death." Were very pregnant and potential spirits to make thee seek it. And Gloucester just says, Oh, strange and fasted villain, would he deny his letter? Said he, I never got him. And so so he's lying about his brother over and over again. And he said, is he denying that he wrote the letter? <laughs> he doesn't know anything about the letter. Because Edmund wrote the letter. And uh, 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 Gloucester is just totally you know he's totally out of touch with what's really going on in his own family and uh, you know that's really sad and uh, uh, so many people today have that same problem they don't even know what's going on in their families and uh, uh, you can see what's happening in america is really it is a family issue and uh, you have so many problems in this world because there's not a dad at home uh, there's not a loving marriage and so, so those things are, are really coming upon us. Well, that's all I have to talk about today. So um, next time, we'll really dive into Act 2. So I want you, uh, to all of you listening out there, to please write me any comments. And uh, you can send those to comments at kpcg.fm. You can also comment at my Twitter page, and that's Shakespeare's Royal Education. So thanks for joining me next time as we advance our royal education.
1: You've been listening to Shakespeare's Royal Education on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.